All right, we're back after a week off, but not really after a week off because, you know, we're good at the pre-recording game. <laughs> Just like all media professionals need to be. See, a lot of y'all take a break, but we figure out how to give y'all the content. <laughs> I was about to say, why Why is it that you have to work twice as hard than you would to go on vacation, and then when you get back, you work twice as hard so you can get caught up? Hey, but it's all about the good times, and I think we both had some good times, and there are a lot of good times going on over with our friends at the Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been cultivating a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, museum exhibits, and student scholarships. More at schubert.org and more on a couple of their upcoming events here in a bit. But, you know, back to good times, Scott. I think we both got into some good times, time with friends, time to reflect. Tell, Tell the people what you were up to. I had two of my oldest friends from Omaha come up and visit, and they had never been to Duluth, so we fixed that. Mm. Went up, um, had one of the most dramatic cloudy days, 60 to 70 mile an hour winds were coming in. You could do that whole mime thing, walking in the breeze, but uh-huh. <laughs> you were really walking against the breeze. But no, it was a great trip, and um, and you know I hadn't seen them since. It's been almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was in New York doing a lot of work, a lot of, you know, if there's anything I haven't yet walking in the wind figured out, yeah, a little bit of that, but I have not (laughs) quite figured out how to go to sleep in that city. And I'm not saying it's so noisy, you can't go to sleep, but have you ever felt maybe when you're out of town visiting folks or on assignment, by the time you're laying down, it's one, two o'clock in the morning, but you got to be right back up at seven, seven thirty, and you have another full day and do it again and again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's conference schedule for a lot of people. But for me, that's New York. I got to figure out how to go home and go to bed or go to Caesars and go to bed. So do you end up sitting there worrying that you're going to miss the the alarm? So you just end up being up? I think there's something about knowing that there's actually a commute that kind of wakes me up because, you know, I'm all the way in the house. So if I I have an 830 Zoom meeting, you know, 815, I can still be in the bed and it's and I'll still work it out. But that's not quite (laughs) (laughs) that's not quite the case when you have to actually go somewhere, especially get on the train and and do all that. But anyway, I had a a great time. You know, I just really want to shout out Caesar. You know, we we really uh, bonded and got into a lot of uh, incredible conversations and listened to a lot of incredible music, but I think the highlight of our trip was going uh, into Queens, Corona, Queens, New York, and visiting the Louis Armstrong Museum. It's where his um, home was, you know, where he lived mm. um, all the way up in, until he died. When you uh, hear the name Louis Armstrong, what comes to mind? Why is, uh, from your perspective, this a, a significant figure in American music? I really got plugged into him when I was working as an overnight DJ. <laughs> at the at KVNO mm-hmm. uh, overnight weekend jazz. Okay, and he came through as a recurrent, you know. Yeah. And also, whenever there was a jock's choice, I would throw on something classic. But I was also that guy. Like, if you came over to my house for a party or something, I'm going to try to put on music to set the mood. Yeah. And for some reason, I thought it was cool. I was like pre hipster. Sure. Right? So, and I just thought that putting on Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and and Sarah Vaughn and artists like that, I thought that I was being counterculture. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about setting the mood. This is the last opus of Triloquy before Halloween. We, mm-hmm. aren't, we aren't doing a spooktacular or anything this year, but 
Louis Armstrong did give us something a little spooky if you're doing some classy Halloween party and you want to put on some classic jazz. I, I found this track called Spooks by Louis Armstrong. I didn't previously know it, but I think it fits for a nice jazzy Halloween. Let's listen to a little bit of it here. About 12 o'clock, I thought I'd go downstairs just to check the lock. When I heard something in the house, I don't mean a mouse. I swear they were spooks, spooks, spooks. I know they were spooks, 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 spooks. I couldn't move, just stood and stare. I never was so scared. The first spook spoke and I heard him speak. He spooks. Said, by Louis Armstrong, you, you just can't help but to kind of bop to it, mm-hmm. kind of even put you in a good mood, even though it's supposed to be a spooky too. There's something cheerful about it. I love thinking about Louis Armstrong, and I love how visiting that museum sort of recontextualized his significance for me. You know, before we went to the museum, Caesar showed me a, a documentary he put together on uh, Louis Armstrong, and there were two different clips of Wynton Marcellus sort of singing his praises. Mm-hmm. You had a young Wynton Marcellus basically saying, oh yeah, all these young cats need to get hip to Louis Armstrong. He's he's such a cool person. I listen to all sorts of music and Louis Armstrong is up there. And then you have a clip of older Wynton Marcellus not only just singing his praises and how great of a musician he was, but really outlining the fact that he is foundational to American music. You know, some of the things that Wynton Marcellus was talking about uh, in relation to Louis Armstrong was the fact that he uh, basically invented the uh, solo in a jazz chart. You mm-hmm. know, he normalized and codified what they called scatting in, in music. You know, mm-hmm. with, with your background in jazz radio, was he, uh, at least, you know, in your surroundings, revered as sort of that godfather of American music? You know, I think we can think of him as just another musician if we're if we don't really know the history but it seems like you know folks need to really put him up let there me, on that pedestal let me answer it by asking you a question sure have you ever met somebody that didn't like louis armstrong i i can't say that i have boom <laughs> there, so he, there so it is he really was put up there and right he, yeah right. The and programming and stuff you were doing yeah and you could guarantee that somebody would call up and go hey what what album did that come off? What, you know, and so people were wanting to go and buy it. You know, this is before the internet. Yeah. You know, back, things did exist back in those days. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. You know, and the uh, another thing I'll say about the museum was that uh, there was in, in Lewis's old, they call them Pops, everybody in New York, you know, um, <clears throat> who was, uh, so excuse me. Um, there was, th- there's this beautiful portrait of Louis Armstrong and the tour guide was like, well, we have down there the signature Benedito. Does anyone know who that artist is? And, you know, of course no one knew. And then she pulled out in her folder, uh, this photo of Louis Armstrong and Tony Bennett, this beautiful portrait of Mm. Louis Armstrong was done by Tony Bennett. So of course I went back and, uh, looked at some of his other paintings on the internet. You know, you can just Google it, Tony Bennett paintings and, uh, you know, he's another one of these big names in jazz, but also an incredible visual artist. Did you know that no Tony idea. Bennett could could do that? No, I didn't. It, but didn't you say something about 
uh, Armstrong not playing New Orleans though? What was that bit about him not playing? Yeah, one Nixon? of the yeah one of the uh, famous things about his legacy is that you know he has his home in Corona Queens, New York, but he's from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. But back when he was on the circuit, there was a law put in place where uh, integrated bands could not perform publicly, you know, because segregation was that strong. So because that was the rule down in Louisiana, down in New Orleans, Louis Armstrong wouldn't go back uh, and perform in his hometown. I think they say he boycotted for uh, 10 years before he, uh, before he, before he went back. But anyway, look at him now. He's got an airport. Exactly. And, you know, they, they do what they can, but Mm. at the end of the day, they also bulldozed his childhood home. You know, there's just a lot of critique um, over the history of how, the hometown treated, you know, the American hero, the the foundation. Anyway, mm, th- this yeah. isn't about, you know, doing that to New Orleans, but it was just, you know, really important for me and really significant for me to see this figure really contextualized as, uh, you know, the hero, the the father of American classical music. I brought up uh, Tony Bennett a couple minutes ago because in the documentary that uh, me and Caesar were watching the day before we went to the museum. You have him on tape saying that, you know, this music, the music codified by Louis Armstrong is American classical music. Hmm. Mm. I wonder what we've heard that before. (laughs) I feel like I, you know, have really been making some headway as far as the mission and the general idea of decolonizing classical music, reframing that phrase classical music to refer to our classical music, to right. our culture, right. to our history. You know, you have Tony Bennett out here saying it. You have all sorts of other people challenging the norms in their various ways. And you have us here on this podcast trying to do it the way we do it. Let's jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 171. Thanks so much for returning. To the returning listeners, we couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for coming back week after week to hear Scott and I talk about whatever we talk about. Sometimes it feels (laughs) like nothing, but look, (laughs) we're doing our best and we try to decolonize classical music here. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and includes things that haven't always been approximated to that phrase, but we include them, juxtapose them with classical music and reframe the concept all in an effort to decolonize classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, learn more about how the sausage is made, so to speak, and to donate, go to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for the Triloquy podcast comes from Schubert Club. We're already at the end of October here, so we got to look at what's going on in November. Well, on November 4th, Schubert Club is presenting the Spectral Quartet 
presenting Enigma, a 360 video experience. Uh, in the description here, it says Enigma by Anna Thorvin's daughter is a solar eclipse inspired musical work enlivened by 360 degree video art by Sigurdjör Gudjonsson projected onto the Bell Museum's planetarium ceiling. Cool. Anna Thorvin's daughter is a name that you've said a couple times. Give quite it up a, for this composer real quite quick. Quite a few times. Uh, Icelandic composer who has, uh, in my mind, a really incredible range. Everything from uh, vocal works that will stir your soul to uh, her piece called Metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. uh, that will that'll make you sit up and pay attention. Well, yeah, well you'll hear great. you'll hear Enigma um, by the Spectral Quartet uh, presented by Schubert Club on November 4th. And then on November 18th, we have Our Song, Our Story, The New Generation of Black Voices. It's an evening celebrating the world's most well-known arias, art songs, and spirituals created and directed by composer, conductor, and multi-genre musician Damien Sneed. Shout out to Damien Sneed that's coming up with the Schubert Club on November 18th. I also quickly want to send a shout out to Third Coast Percussion, uh, who is running their current creative partnership this year. So how that works, Third Coast Percussion is going to work closely with the composer at the beginning of their career over the course of their season, and it'll include three workshop sessions in person at their studio, with the ending result being a 2023-2024 Chicago concert season performance. Hmm. So if you're a composer who wants to write something for percussion uh, quartet and have it performed by an ensemble as spectacular as Third Coast Percussion, check out that opportunity at thirdcoastpercussion.com. We have the hosts from the SCORE podcast coming up in the third movement. Shout out to Rocky, Page, and Lee. I'm out for a couple of little mini trills in the fourth movement today, but a multi-trill fourth mo movement. Multi-trills, yes. But for <laughs> now, we're going to jump into movement one. Okay, so um, should I backtrack anything I said last week concerning Kanye West? Because some of my comments were kind of wild, uh, considering <laughs> what had happened since we recorded that. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. Y'all were polite in the DMs, but, but there were definitely, a, a, there was a knife or two in there. So if I can offer a natural, where's where's my natural? Is that I stand by what I said. I think we need to build bridges. Also, we're pre-recording here, so <laughs> well, I was that week anyway. So right, <laughs> but you know, but but and not to rehash it, but I do think there is something to making every possible effort, even when it feels selfless, to build a bridge to engage in some dialogue. Can can you not say that to a degree he is isolating himself? Sure, but isolated nonetheless. But this isn't the first time. Right, that's true. This that's has true. happened before. Um, all I can say is that I am very scared and nervous over the way his words are being used in white supremacist circles now. I hear that. Um, I don't know what, I, I, I don't know what the end game of all that is i don't i don't understand it but it's not good it's not good to have <clears throat> certain groups emboldened yeah yeah i understand that so i just need to put my big boy pants on and i don't know alter my music listening or i don't know it, it, it's it's hard to say i i do not stand with what i have been seeing since we recorded two weeks ago, mm -hmm. you know, the episode that aired last week. So I just want to state that and 
I'm praying for our brother because I want him to be better. But anyway, moving on to this week's accidentals, I'm going to get us going here with a sharp, you know, starting with some positive good news. I'm reading from msmnyc.edu. It says here, Manhattan School of Music doctoral student Glenn Alexander II makes Carnegie Hall debut conducting John Batiste's An American Symphony. It says here, uh, current MSM doctoral student Glenn Alexander made his Carnegie Hall debut uh, a few weeks ago, conducting the premiere of John Batiste's American Symphony. Uh, he was back last week um, as assistant conductor for May and Chin at the American Composers Orchestra concert at Carnegie Hall. So mm-hmm. it was really cool for me to meet Glenn Alexander. He actually came up to me and was like, are you Garrett? You know, I, I I just love being in these new music circles because I'm a fan of everybody. People are a fan of Triloquy and we just fans of each other, just sharing all the love. You know, it's it's, it's good to to be in a space like that. But um, he's, he's really doing some um, incredible work. Uh, in addition to working in New York, um, he has some stuff going on as the Project Inclusion Conducting Freeman Fellow with the Chicago Sinfonietta. Um, he's a conducting fellow with the Greater Connecticut Youth Orchestra and is doing all types of really, really, really incredible things as much as we you know well maybe i'll say as much as i scott rag on conductors um on this show from time to time i think a crop of conductors who are younger who are fresher who are excited by things like a john batiste symphony that may Mm -hmm. be one of the saving grace ingredients for this art form what do you think does a uh does a fresh cool conductor uh change the game Dudamel did for a little while when he first came on the scene maybe we're just repeating this pattern see i want to say yeah but then it 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 all of a sudden seems like it was just the one-off specialty thing Mm. i keep going back to that idea of the track record you got orchestras need to show more of a track record and what if what about if the artists themselves here we're talking about conductors can that track record not translate to a space if there's someone who we know is out here doing the cool stuff and this orchestra brings them on to do something does that track record not <laughs> uh sure. count over yeah. onto the orchestra side yeah, a little I bit think maybe so. i think so but you know um doesn't it all hinge on the conductor in in some ways from program selection mm-hmm. to uh leading the music well right Right. Right. And then not hogging the spotlight after the music is over. Right. There's something about that spotlight, though, and and the tools that can be done with it. I mean, I'm even thinking back to Leonard Bernstein. He was the superstar. He's who people were looking at. He's he was the name. He did transform the industry in, in his own way. I mean, the advent of youth concerts and that sort of thing. It was relatively unprecedented. One of those articles that I brought in, though, um, it said that Dudamel doesn't take bows. Mm-hmm. He gives acknowledgement to the other, to the people in the orchestra and the soloists. Yeah, that's important. So, yeah, I think that he's sort of, is it eschewing or eschewing? He's, <laughs> he's getting, you know, right. sort of, you know, sharing the spotlight, spreading the spotlight. Right. And what was interesting for me at the Carnegie Hall concert that Glenn was um, the backup conductor for, you know, you, I'm, I'm sitting in the hall and, you know, of course, the conductor is is getting their praise. The composers, each of the composers were there, the musicians. And then you have folks on the staff. We're just kind of 
in the background and and unseen to an extent. It was it was my first time in uh, experiencing an orchestra concert like that, and not at all by any means was I looking for someone to say my name for the stage. But in a way, it was kind of nice to sit back and to you know see the the fruits of the labor at least you know as far as the team is concerned and just enjoy it and not have to worry about putting on the smile for the applause or mm. you know saying the oh yeah so thank you all, all that sort of thing you know it, it was sure it was a refreshing uh sort of experience let me ask you a quick question you asked whether uh you know where louis armstrong was in the pantheon of jazz musicians was he on that god tier status give me an idea of where manhattan school of music sits in the classical school landscape i would put it next to to juilliard for sure i mean there's curtis always for for me just kind of has that top spot because they don't hardly let nobody in you know it's Mm. it's one bassoonist Mm. a year and all that sort of stuff so Mm. just by the numbers that's probably the most competitive but on that you know 1.5 tier you know i will put manhattan school of music next to juilliard next to new england conservatory next to oberlin i know in bold in this article uh they have i love being a part of the msm lineage we're talking about glenn alexander uh he says so many greats have been catapulted out of this institution you know my teacher shout out to lacolian he went to the manhattan school Mm. of music so it's up there and i think it's great that the manhattan school of music gets to say they had glenn alexander the second at their school you know doing the doing the stuff he's doing that gives them some street cred you know that helps build their their track record and to get one nerdy level deeper on that so he mentions george manahan as a teacher Mm-hmm. Is that something that you would put on a resume? Of course. I mean, he's legendary. He's he's uh, he's the conductor of the American Composers Orchestra. But it's also about pride in, you know, mm-hmm. one's teacher, mm-hmm. you know, that that uh, student teacher, you know, mentor disciple, as we say in my Buddhism, you know, right. that, that that sort of relationship is kind of more of an Eastern thing for people to just regularly understand, except for in music, you know, or martial arts, as you've experienced right, right. here, really having that uh, sensei. So anyway, right. all of this, just a uh, shout out and, and give some flowers to Glenn Alexander II. You know, again, going back to the American Composer orchestra concert that um, he was assistant conductor for that that I was there um, to to work and and to attend. Um, I sat next to someone very special, and I'm going to share some of her music here in a a couple minutes. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you, we've talked about on concert night, on your night off, there's a lot that orchestras have to compete with, so they really have to bring something good. When it comes to being in the mix of sort of the who's who of uh, new music of living composers, you know, at ACO, I'm constantly, you know, uh, seeing folks like John Corleano. And, right. you know, there was music performed on the concert by Mark Adamo, Inti Figuezueta, um, Yvette Janine Jackson, Via Kuang. You know, you have, I saw VJ Iyer uh, at the concert. You know, anyway, I, I can name names all day long. Are there folks who, if you could, you know, be you know, set in between them at the concert or beside someone that would sweeten that pot for you a little it's bit. It's so know? funny. Be, that being among the who's who, who, who would that be for you? It's so funny that in the Schubert Club announcement, you mentioned Anna, Anna Thorvald's daughter. Because if you could sit next to her. That's definitely a, a name. Uh, Devon Russell Gray. Of course. I would love to sit next to him during the show. Uh, Dabrinka Tabakova. And, and I've 
really been paying a lot of attention to Carlos Simon lately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really been enjoying his work. I heard some of his solo piano music called uh, um, Requiem for the Enslaved. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Beautiful work. So what, so what if the concert experience could be that because, and I'm not going to name anyone specifically, but we've had a lot of composers. I've, I've had a lot of living composers on this podcast. And what I hear all of them saying interview after interview is they don't go to the concerts because of the traditional repertoire, right? You know, so if it was new music, if peers were hearing peers, we could really create that concert experience where you're seeing, you know, your your faves or getting to dialogue with other composers as you're seeing another living composer's work on the stage. Mm. I feel like that could that's, be that's powerful. That, that could be a part of the sauce as well. You know, sure. I'm thinking about you know the local composers here. You know, what if uh, you could just count on seeing folks like Paviel French, you know, or, or Queen Drea at the concert, or even, you know, more broadly, what if, you know, wherever you live, you could count on, you know, maybe sitting next to Michael Torkey or, mm. you know, uh, Eric Whitaker or whoever mm. your fave is. I think that could be something that could really help cultivate a new culture around the orchestral music experience. And, you know, that's what I experienced with, with ACO, you know, and I'm, I'm there, you know, as mm. an employee. So Interesting. I, I, I feel like more folks need to tap, tap into that. I mean, what, what, what do you think? Is it, is the who's who is in the room factor something that could be a thing to, to sort of boil the pot well, of, or, I mean, of orchestral music again? You're, you're talking about um, a pretty narrow shot of me getting that one ticket that happens to be next to the seat. Hey, but that I'm saying, but have. I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there was a, the, the, the off shot, Sure, it's like a little extra lottery winnings or something. Or just yeah. knowing that that's the space where these folks are. So, and you want to be right. in that space. And I've, and I've heard that Dobrinka Tabakova is very friendly and likes to hang out, mm -hmm. you know, so that would, the, that would take some of the stress off of it because uh, let's also face it. Some of the bigger names you mentioned, Torquay, or what about Philip Glass or yeah, somebody uh, like yeah. that? Wouldn't you fanboy out a little bit? I would I would do my best to hold it in and right. be cool just for the sake of the conversation. Because right. if you fanboy, they can go, right. you know, oh gonna, well, well, all right, well, I need to go to the restroom. Right. Or I and need to get you know. <laughs> I just forgot that I have to not be here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the see, that's the trick. You gotta right. be cool. Well, I had the opportunity. I, I was I was very privileged uh, at the concert to sit next to the one and only Enbal Sigiv. I mean, mm. the, the the recordings, yes. the, the the interviews, the the content. I mean, all the way. Let me hit the applause button i just i think about my early days in radio and discovering those recordings for myself and feeling like i had done something you know mm. the audience haven't heard this before so let me put this on mm. anyway it was great to um engage her and then to be in this space where you know we have glenn alexander ii as the assistant conductor shout out to mayan chin you know one of my faves i've had the opportunity to play under her baton of course the privilege of working for the american composers orchestra great time in that city that wears me out because i'm, I'm telling you i am still trying to catch up on my rest i can't sleep in that city it's too much to do it's too many conversations to have mm. too many coffees too many too many drinks too many too many everything but all in the sake of classical music see i'm this is selfless i'm staying out late for <laughs> right y'all completely selfless. I'm, I'm doing this for y'all that's right <laughs> anyway um <laughs> well we're gonna move on to the next accidental with uh an inball seek of track this is called room to move for cello octet just a really great example of 
the incredible stuff that she's bringing into the world of classical music with the cello. Bach cello suite is is just lovely, you know. It's it, it's great, but at the same time, if you have to do that at an audition mm. or to, to to show your chops or, or or whatever whatever's going on, it would be real easy to knock some people out in yeah. that first round. You yeah. know, the skill you have a loop pedal, so the skill of looping yourself right and and playing in time. That's right. Th this that music can't be marginalized. That. For me, that has to be at the center. And I'm, I feel like I'm getting spoiled living the life and the career that I live that is exclusively about living composers and new music. You know, I'm, I'm, I spend most of my time in my bag when I'm getting to listen to music and, and engage music. That, that, that sort of music is sounding more and more traditional to me mainstream oh, okay. like not mm. not to the left and right and sometimes i fear you know how you go uh nose blind to maybe the smell in your house or something yeah i feel like there is a version of that happening in for my ears. ears you know for me to have to make a case for that instead of uh uh schubert or, or something you know schubert wrote some incredible cello music but we also have that yeah. why would we not listen to that do you do you you don't feel like you're at risk of becoming ear blind or ear ear conditioned or anything ear conditioned yeah i've been <laughs> ear, in the, i've been ear in the, conditioning i've been in the ear good, conditioning yes. for 30 years um all i'm saying is that you and i feel uh similarly that this should be uh, a slam dunk you know that there's 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 nothing keeping that off the radio airwaves or off of the concert hall stage yeah and let me tell you the first traditionalist person that you run into that hears that they are going to lose their mind i'm telling you i i, I can put on a very very short let's say zoe keating or maybe this new segev release when that comes out yeah you put on a three-minute piece where it does that or it has a pedal involved with it and just wait for the emails, man. These white men are dangerous. Anyway, what did I say? On. Go on. What's your accidental? <laughs> it's very serendipitous <laughs> that I brought in this accidental to go after that. Because you know how we talk about we're worried about getting butts in the seats, audiences to come and hear concerts. Right. You might not have to worry about that, according to Classic FM, because they are reporting on a talent exodus in classical music. So never mind that there's not going to be an audience sitting there. So we're talking about a flat? There's not going to be an orchestra <laughs> sitting there. Go on. You didn't, come, it, you didn't see it coming from that direction, Give, give it to us. Give it to us. Okay, so basically this is... Um, uh, this is a very short article that highlights some findings from 
a report. Uh, I can give you the broad strokes of the report. A bittersweet symphony is what they titled it. And the uh, key findings, here are the headlines. Juggling caring and working lives and the impact of the pandemic is an issue. Uh, work struck. Oh wait, wait. Let me let me uh, set this up a little bit. At issue is four in ten uh, classical musicians are leaving the field due to not making enough money, mm-hmm. having to uh, uh, find someone that can take care of a, a child or somebody that they might be giving care to. Right. And uh, and the fact that they have other jobs. Yeah, they, they, they say, we're just not taking it anymore. Right, right. So the thing that leapt out to me is the privilege of, say, an older established musician that doesn't have another job, that uh, maybe is commanding some bigger price tags, mm-hmm. things like that. But the key findings that they're, they're bringing out in the Bittersweet Symphony Report is juggling caring and working lives and the impact of the pandemic has hit their... Uh, their finances, work structures and career sacrifices. So they don't know which to sacrifice Mm -hmm. to further the music career or do they make some money? Right. Social capital versus lack of employer support, work-life balance. You know, you talked about people just aren't, uh, they're going to do the job description and, and and then quiet quit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because why would you? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so there was some interesting findings and there was one in particular, one quote that I wanted to bring in here is the study said that self-employed women, over 85% of whom have parenting and caring responsibilities, reported actually a pay penalty of mm-hmm. 8,000 pounds. So like their male counterpart was right. pulling in, say, 20,000 pounds a year. Yeah. And uh, this is as a freelancer. And women were uh, reporting 12,000 pounds. A greater impact on women, and I'm going to go a step further, women of color. Of course. um, Who are likely to work and earn less and those without social capital. So what I envision is the people that have been sat in an orchestra for a few decades as they retire. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't have anybody to plug into that spot, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So what happens to the orchestras? They become they become chamber ensembles. It's it's hard to say because a part of me wants to say that there will always be someone who wants any opportunity they can get, right? Or you know, will will stretch themselves just to play that one gig that's going to get them two hundred and fifty dollars. But I think at the end of the day, the point is that privilege is key in the performance of so-called classical music and the industry is going to have to reckon with that. It's not okay to have an all white male orchestra anymore, but if you don't have a system in place, if you don't have yourself set up to be able to support women, to support uh, folks who are caregivers, you're going to fall into that status quo issue and and not be able to grow. You know, one of the things I'm so proud of working with ACO is that for our external programs, childcare costs are in, you know, the mix. It's it's something that, you know, we have to offer at the, at the same way that, you know, uh, an organization offers uh, lodging or, you know, offers a per diem if, you know, you're doing mm. certain things. Child care has to be in that because that's the the equitable thing to do. And of course, that's just one of many things. You know, we got to talk about all of the accessibilities that don't currently exist um, that we need to get into. Another thing that's named in this article that, you know, you, you didn't mention was sort of the, the gender binary 
norm aspect mm. of things. You know, inflexibility, it says here, uh, gendered work structures and pay penalties, you know, naming mm. those among the things. You know, we're still dealing with ensembles where girls wear one thing and boys wear another thing, you know. So mm. what what does that even mean? And, right. and why are we perpetuating those sorts of binaries unnecessarily? That has absolutely nothing to do with the performance of the music at the end of the day. So, you know, I, I, I think there are just a lot of little things that add uh, to the big thing that the, the industry is having to to reckon with, as, as it sounds like here. Uh, the report calls on industry leaders to create a classical music sector that works for everyone, highlights flexible working, more advanced scheduling, and sharing best practices, best practice within the industry as the key next steps. Yeah. Well, the, the thing, the part of this article that I wanted to uh, lift up, it says here, only by reevaluating established working practices can we begin to tackle well-being, impacts, inclusion, and diversity and potential loss of talent. This is from the report. It says we need to jointly craft sustainable, considered, and flexible practices, HR policies, and processes to address the talent hemorrhages. It's, it's what it is at the end of the day is just culturally, and this is over in England, but I think it takes uh, uh, applies here in the United States as sure. well. We have gotten so used to the expectation of fitting into the machine instead of adjusting the machinery to fit us. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we need to begin to critique the, not the eight hour day as, uh, you know, like a limitation or anything like that. I understand the labor rights that went into that, but, you know, why not the six hour day, you know, or why not the four, four day work week? You know, Mm -hmm. maybe there are some people who see that as the more radical things, which is normal to me. But, you know, I think talking about childcare and, and gender equity, that's the, the very beginning of, of the, of the conversation. I just think overall, we have to allow ourselves to be free. We have to open our minds to a work life balance that actually fits each other instead of one that's at odds with each other. Well, I think it was just opening eye-opening for me. Well, not necessarily eye-opening, but it was just yet another thing that you can point to that assumptions are made. Yeah, People go and sit in uh, a concert, and if it's a big orchestra, uh, you know, a major city orchestra, mm-hmm. they probably paid a couple bucks right. to get in, right? Right. And- I, now I now I wonder, okay, so the smaller groups, a, a lot of them are sitting there and playing for free. Yeah. And then, of course, that trickles down into what communities have access to. Because right. if, if there's not a system in place for your orchestra to have the folks in it, you know, the, the community can't have that music. So it just trickles down and down and, and, and down in, in that way. It's, it's a hard, it's a difficult balance because mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I've, for many years, uh, as, uh, you know, maybe in, as a high school student, some in college, I played in a community band because it was fun to do so. Cause you, you wanted know, to th- do there, it, yeah. there are a couple of orchestras back in Memphis that I will play with and wouldn't get a check to do it. But, you know, I'm, if I'm doing a favor for a friend or just, you know, spending time doing what I love or being a part of, of something, you know, that's one thing. But at the end of the day, folks got to eat and it's hard to, you know, match what these big budget orchestras have at, at that at that lower rung, because I don't think we're talking about New York Philharmonic players, you know, Chicago Symphony no. players. We're talking about right. folks trying it's- to make it. 
yeah. out here. You yeah, know. the freelancers, the, uh, the 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 like you said, getting two hundred and fifty bucks is that a going rate? Is that? I mean, that's that would be pitiful, but some there are plenty of folks who would take it at mm. the same time. Interesting point. See, so that's all the, the reason that it just got me thinking about uh, where the ticket money goes. Yeah, um, and how many really upper upper shelf caliber, you know, really talented musicians do we not get to hear because of not being able to get childcare or uh, to find somebody to watch your, you know, either, whoever you're giving care to in your life? Yeah, it's hard to know what an answer to it all is right. because at the end of the day it seems to just boil down to money but i think we can just talk about different sorts of uh equitable initiatives and and relationships you know maybe someone on staff can have the <laughs> you know when i was going to church as a, a little kid you know there was a little nursery in the back you mm -hmm. know where there was one maybe two adults just making sure no child was bleeding or setting something on fire or whatever mm -hmm. What if orchestras have that? You know, you gotta you gotta pay folks some some money, even so, to watch all these kids now. Sure, that, but you know, just something in place to to uh, address the issues that are laid out here. And so, the people who like new music, you're not going to get the opportunity to hear this new music if people are walking away from the business, right? Right. So that's a little bit of serendipity between, uh, you know, from your white men are dangerous and the <laughs> right. keystroke. And I think, you know, just just to tie a bow on this, I think the reality is that um, even when it, you know, if we're going to lift the conversation up from the performing arts, specifically talking about talent moving on, uh, moving on, you know, what were they saying? The great resignation mm -hmm. around, you know, post quarantine time, mm -hmm. people are, you know, taking risks and moving into their most adventurous selves, their most That's artistic right. selves. And the more structured corners of the industry just, you know, as maybe as Wynton Marcellus would say, need to get hip to it, need, mm -hmm. need to, need to understand that the, the paycheck in itself for many people isn't enough you know you m money can be found anywhere um why not somewhere else i think that's what a lot of folks are are, are getting into and you know the the businesses and the and the industries that are you know very well structured and sticking to these gender norms are are going to bear the brunt of it until they you know begin to grease the wheels and fix their machinery you know again it's i, I think we just need to have the courage to think about what it would mean, what it would look like to adjust the work structure and the work system to the person instead mm. of the mm -hmm. other way around, mm -hmm. you know. But it's it's hard to do that in a in a very structured way of making music. You huh? are right. <laughs> it all it all uh, bleeds out and and uh, intersects with each other. Anyway, all right. Any any more on that classic FM? Uh, no warning, warning. Talent exodus in classical music. Warning. Okay, well, that's what it said. <laughs> um, the the name of the report was Bittersweet Symphony. So of course, I don't know if we've ever uh, played this song Nor by the Verve Ventriloquy. Maybe, maybe not. But if we haven't, I, I think it deserves to be here. It's one of those pop classics in in American classical music. I'll say it even starts with the strings here, doesn't it? Bittersweet Symphony by the Verve to get us into the second movement.
Where does that take you back to? Well, what what does Bittersweet Symphony bring to mind for you just most immediately? Driving around in my car um, late at night, windows down, and thinking that I was counterculture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slave to the money, then you die. That's right. Man. Yeah, very, very, very 90s. Mm-hmm. In, in my previous life with my uh, previous other half, our, our first uh, date, we watched uh, the movie Cruel Intentions. Uh, do you remember remember that film? I know Ryan the film, Phillip but I didn't and, see it. Um, it ba- based on the book uh, Dangerous Liaisons, I think the name of the book oh, is. Yeah. Anyway, that's one of the theme songs of the of of the movie really mm. really really great track there i think it's important to return to bittersweet symphony every now and again nice example of how the symphonic sound can make it into the the top 40 make it into the american classical music charts and uh yeah we're going to talk about a little american classical music here in this second movement this is where scott and i sort of share some music we've been spending some time with so i'm, I'm going to go first this week um, so, you know, again, I was mentioning that I was in New York having all sorts of great dialogue, meeting all sorts of folks. And one of the folks I want to um, shout out is uh, Mike Laster. He's uh, doing uh, some work with the Beethoven Festival Orchestra that uh, our friend Caesar is the president of and um, that I, I sit on the board for. So we just we're talking a little bit of business, but we were up until, you know, two thirty, three o'clock. I didn't even sleep on my way back. You know, I take those early flights every time for I whatever travel. reason. <laughs> So, you know, I, I stopped talking with Mike Laster at three in the morning, and had to pack a bag and head on to the Newark airport. Anyway, um, Mike is a composer. And I think, you know, being in New York just reminds me of how many incredible composers, how much great music is out there. And among his really great pieces of music is one called Graffiti for Idealists. This recording um, comes from the Aurelius String Quartet. And I think it, you know, is yet another of the many, 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 many examples we have of ways that the string quartet, as traditional as it can be, can also bring something new. So here's a little bit of this. Again, it's called Graffiti for Idealists, music by Mike Laster. has kind of has that dance quality to it deep under it yeah but but, and a groove at the same time but also very uh contemporary and uh how can i say adventurous sonically you know when i was really spending some time with that piece i was in the back um of a of an uber uh, riding through the city because listen, I've, <laughs> I'm I'm not rich or nothing, but if I can afford to take a uh, Uber instead of getting on that train, that's what I do. Period. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so I'm in the back of the car, and you know we're we're riding through uh, Brooklyn, Bushwick, where my brother lives, going back to uh, where I was sleeping on the uh, Upper West Side, and you know I'm seeing all of these walls and buses with graffiti uh, sprayed all over it, and there 
is you know there is a populace that will see that scenery and feel um, like they're in danger or or something. But right. you know, I really worked intentionally in those moments to flip my thinking and to look at all of this free folk art <laughs> mm. that you know I, I get to enjoy. You know, and then hearing you know that piece of music that uh, graffiti for idealists in the background it offered just this juxtaposition that you know for me just is an example of one of the many reasons I love being in New York City, as exhausting as it can be on my body and my spirit. I feel like there are certain just visuals and certain experiences that I only get to have there. And I think just recontextualizing the way that we um, engage our surroundings can help us recontextualize the way that we even listen to music. And not that I needed the sight of graffiti to really enjoy this piece of music, but it definitely enhanced and add a, a level of depth to the experience I right. was having. But the question becomes, then next time you listen to this piece of music, is it going to take you back to that scene? It kind of does. It it it, it takes me right back to the to the back of that back of that car, mm, you know, and the sense memories. And you know, you have and, and and again, we have that more familiar as a matter of fact, let me play a little bit uh more of this here. So we have that sort of familiarness of bar structure and dance groove, uh, which, you know, I think could be representative of the safety of being in a car and and these neighborhoods. Mm. But then you also have a little bit of that grit, a little bit of the scratch on on Mm. the instruments. And, you know, that that can represent the so the rougher edges. danger, the rougher yeah. edges. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, uh, again, like I was saying, it's all kind of folks out there, all sorts of living composers doing their best to make a living. And there's so many threads to pull on and stories to tell and experiences to share, but just digging into it. So, you know, among the plethora of living composers out there is Mike Laster. And I think he's writing some cool stuff. So mm. be sure to check him out. His website is Michael Laster. Dot com. I'm going to do it. That's my second movement, my second ending this week. What you got? For mine, you know how last week we observed the anniversary of Peter Tosh's birth? Mm-hmm. And I think that my algorithm went, oh, you want to hear some reggae now? Yeah, see, okay. they're, see they're, they're listening. So Right. So <laughs> be careful <laughs> what you say. <laughs> as, it, as it went uh, trucking along, it brought up a track that I probably haven't listened to since, oh, I don't know. I'm going to say at least five years that I okay. haven't had this track on. Well. And after I heard it, I am I could tell that I have progressed as a guitarist because I could go pick up my guitar and I could pick, and I, what I had sh- struggled with playing along with before, now I can play. Mm-hmm. That's called growth. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, and I, I have a growth and uh, <laughs> on the guitar. Okay, okay. <laughs> so... Um, the artist that came through, his name is Matis Yahoo, mm-hmm. and uh, he's uh, from Pennsylvania. He grew up in a uh, conservative, uh, Orthodox Jewish home, Yeah, and uh, he did what a lot of people do, um, rebelled against that, but then came back around, and he started to perform wearing a yarmulke and traditional um, t- uh, fringed yeah. uh, clothing. I forget what the... Uh, Anyway, so he was dressed traditionally. Yeah. But how I met him was a buddy of mine was having people over for dinner. I got invited and he always puts on a great party. But 
he said, yeah, the, my rabbi called and said that there's an artist coming through town that needs a kosher meal. So he's going to be there too. And, you know, it was just, it was this guy dressed as a Hasidim, a Jewish person at the end of the table. Mm -hmm. He was relatively quiet. And at the end, when he was getting ready to leave, he says, I got to go. I got to go do the show. I was thinking he was a visual artist or something. Mm -hmm. No, he is a reggae rapper, beatboxer artist. And his name is Matis Yahoo. Um, the song that came through, though, really warms me up. It's called One Day, and I like in particular the acoustic version because it just lets his voice come through. Sometimes I lay under the moon I thank God I'm breathing then I pray, don't take me soon I am here for a reason Sometimes my tears I drown But I never let it get me down So when negativity surrounds I know someday it'll all come around Cause all my life I've been waiting for I've been praying for For the people to say That we don't want to So what's your one day? Well, what what is the one day you look ahead to as you listen to this song? Oh, jeez. That's deep. Um, right now, I'm thinking about all the anti-Semitism that's being batted around. Yeah. And it's frightening, man. And I think that Manas Yahoo's message is... It, it, it's that Pollyanna thing, but you know, it makes me feel good in the moment mm -hmm. when I'm listening to it. So the one day... Garrett, right now, I don't feel like there is one. It's something that we dream about. Mm -hmm. It's something we fantasize over. I don't know if there even is one. You know, Sorry I, to be <laughs> that yeah, frank. You know, and, and I think that's when they win, when, when, we, when we give up that hope. And who is the they? Well, whoever you, know, you, you want it to be. But I'm, I'm, that, that's what I'm fighting for. If, if I really felt like it was useless, mm -hmm. you know, I'd, I'd be out of here. I'd what be else? in Seychelles yeah. already, you know, right. <laughs> but you well, know, you so can't I, give up. You got so so I, I feel like, you know, maybe, maybe songs like that are ways to help lift people up, lift up the spirits, you know, when you are feeling hopeless or, yeah. or, or whatever. And I don't know. We, we we have to we we have we have to keep going. We have to believe in one day. Otherwise, what are we doing all this for? For the for the paycheck? Because you know you you get that and you still broke somehow. Mm -hmm. So what does it matter? Mm -hmm. You know. So it, it has to be something bigger. Uh, I, you know, maybe listen to the song some more and get it and get more into that. You know, one day spirit instead of feeling otherwise. And go and check out uh, Live at Stubbs, King Without a Crown is another good track from him. And just type in Modest Yahoo Beatbox and listen to him go. He's He's got a knack. Yeah. And it'll be in the description. I've, I've been... Uh, I've been busy. I've been slacking on my descriptions, but I'm going to update descriptions, including that one, because I had not heard of Matis Yahoo. So, you know, maybe not everyone knows M-A-T-I-S-Y-A-H-U. 
One Day Acoustic. That's a great track, as is the track that's going to get us into the third movement. So um, I'm very excited to offer to you part one of my conversation with Rocky Lee and Paige from The Score. The Score is a a podcast that uh, is hosted by opera professionals, opera lovers, and just honors uh, a different shade of it, you know, but presents it in a in a different way, a way that has a little bit more cultural competency and uh, relevance to today. And I don't know, something that, you know, they've, they've put together to uh, really shift the world of, of opera and help get more people into it. The score, of course, is also the name of one of those legendary American classical music albums by the Fugees, you mm. know, so their 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 logo is even similar. So it's, it's I see that it's, now. it's really cool to um you know participate and uh, to see those worlds coming together as it relates to opera and cool you know for me to connect with some of our uh, podcast siblings out here doing doing the thing. Mm. So mm-hmm. uh, to get us into my conversation with Rocky Lee and Paige from the score, we're going to listen to one of those famous tracks from the score. This is Ready or Not by the Fugees, you know. I can't even it's call the, it classic. It's one of the tracks. That is the track. It's one of the examples of what this American classical music thing sounds like. So a little of this to get me into my conversation with the hosts of the score. Hope y'all enjoy. Gonna find you and take it slowly. Ready or not, here I come. You can't hide. Gonna find you. Now that I escape, sleep, walk away Those who correlate know the world ain't kick Jail bars ain't golden gates Those who fake, they break When they meet their 400 pound mate If I could rule the world The album itself just like kind of underscored Like a certain part of my of my child My childhood But especially just when I hear like the classic Ready or not here I come. You can't hide. Especially, I don't know if it's because I was a child that it was very catchy, and <laughs> and the Fujis have just like kind of been a staple since then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rocky, where are you from originally? Well, I'm I'm trying to make the, the geographic connections as I think about this. I grew up just outside of DC, um, oh, okay. in Northern Virginia. Okay, so did did uh, the Fujis hit down there as I'm sure they did? In the- <laughs> they sure did. They sure did. I remember. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade when um, the score came out, and I went to the mall and went to Sam Goody or Tower or something mm-hmm. <laughs> to go buy it. And the dude behind the counter would not let me buy it because it had the parental advisory sticker on it, and I was like. <laughs> seriously like seriously and he was like no no you can't have this um so when i finally did get my hands on it um i remember like there was also like and and on top of it being just a brilliant piece of art and music there was also i just remember sitting on the bus with my disc man like feeling like i was being kind of subversive (laughs) 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 and naughty but i think for me when you when you answered that when you asked um that initial question ready or not for me is also just sort of that iconic um intro um is what just pops out for me as just you know this staple of my childhood and you know and then miseducation of lauren hill came out and you know they've just been just a huge part of my 
my personal musical development. Yeah, and and Lee, the New York experience is in your blood. It's it's <laughs> surely you must you know have an attraction to this American classical music based on that alone. Oh, absolutely. The I would say the score is um, was one of the first albums that allowed me to connect musically with friends um, in a very substantive way. Um, so I I grew up singing, but it was mostly doing stuff in theater and in opera here or there as a kid. And I remember when Killing Me Softly came out, a friend of mine asked, can you sing this? And I thought, of course I can. And it was like <laughs> such a, <laughs> but it was such a great moment because it was the first time I got to connect that part of my life with my friends who were not into theater, were not into um, opera at all, and and allowed me to see that my skill set was a little bit more flexible than I was thinking it was initially. I mean, and I don't want to spend the the whole conversation talking about Lauren Hill, but you know, I, I would be remiss if I just didn't say the sentence "Sister Act Two. I mean, when yes. I think about yes. those magical moments, yes. I think about uh, "Eye on the Sparrow" at that piano. Paige, I wonder if if you can speak to you know connecting all of this nostalgia. Um, into the project that is the score podcast. What's the what are the 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 bridges or the connections between what we're talking about and getting folks interested in opera? Yeah. Well, I think we're talking about like what is a huge like shared cultural context that we all have that, you know, uh projects, albums that we have stories around, that we all have memories around and that you know, you can say it, especially in a room full of hip hop fans or black people in general. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we all it evokes a certain thing, a certain emotion. And to me, that connects to classical music in a big way, because there's certainly plenty of classical pieces that we think of the same way that evoke a certain mood, whether you've seen the whole opera, whether you've heard the whole whole like orchestral piece or not. You know, mm -hmm. there are just those icons that are part of our culture and that tell the story. So I think that we wanted to bring to light some of those things in Black culture uh, through the podcast and, you know, talking about what we love. Yeah, I love that you say, you know, when you say certain things in a room full of Black people, well, <laughs> opera isn't often that, you know, and then more often than the opposite. But before we, you know, really begin to jump in too much, let's do a little uh, name and voice pairing for all of the people who are, who are who are listening. So just we, so everyone knows how the conversation is going. So let's go uh, Paige, Rocky, Lee, if you could uh, each introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about what you do at Minnesota Opera. Yes, yes. Well, hello. My name is Paige Reynolds. Uh, I use she, her, and they, them pronouns, or any pronouns meant with respect. Um, and now I am at Minnesota Opera just doing this podcast, <laughs> just <laughs> <laughs> co-hosting with Rocky and Lee, and I was formerly full-time staff, and I am forever an opera fan, though. Uh, yeah, my name is Rocky Jones. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I am a video artist, musician, writer, um, somebody that has always thought that art could be the catalyst for a more um, just world. 
And right now I am the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion at Minnesota Opera. And basically my function is to look at all of the systems, policies, procedures that we have in place and make sure that they are all in alignment with the anti-racist and anti-oppressive values as set out in our diversity charter, which um, was a document that was, well, I'll just say that Paige and I were primary authors of <laughs> 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 that document, um, which has become, uh, I'm very proud to say, a foundational document at um, Minnesota Opera, which informs um, all the things that we do. And I am just sort of in charge of stewarding that that work. Ashe, Ashe. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Lee. I am a displaced New Yorker and a proud Black artist, super excited to be out here in the Twin Cities. I am currently the Vice President for Impact at Minnesota Opera, which includes the equity, diversity, and inclusion, the community engagement and access, and also the education. And I have a bit of a function working on programming the seasons as well. Um, Just super excited to be here in this place where um, there is so much thoughtfulness about how the how we need to be engaging our art with um, race and community and um, a host of progressive causes. So yeah. thank you for having us. Yeah, no, yes. it's my pleasure. Yes, so we'll we'll jump back into talking about the score here in a bit, but I wanted to uh, dive into a couple of opera things, starting with you, Lee. It's clear, at least to many, that large opera organizations like the Met, like Minnesota Opera, like you know Houston Grand, I can name all of these opera houses, the tried and true approach will continue to work to a degree, but it seems like it's our job, it's your job to shift that tried and true approach. Is that an, a, an appropriate way, in your opinion, to, to look at it? Opera will survive if we allow it to be white. That's the mm-hmm. challenge. That's what we're trying to do. Huh. The you know I, I I do struggle with this question, right? Because I I think there there hasn't been the attentiveness to reconstituting the audience for the opera, right? Um, and I I think very much this is why we are here, Rocky Page and I, on this podcast, but also more generally, I think this is the attraction of the work in this area where we are faced with a set of demographic realities that mean that the way that a lot of classical music organizations, because it's not just opera, I think orchestras are in a very similar boat, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Really have to rethink what it means to engage with communities, what they program, why they're programming it, and who is making these choices. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a fundamentally about opening the doors and inviting a new set of folks in to think through this project, right? And to have a a firm and real and substantive engagement with the issues that are happening in the community that need to inform the choices around the art. So I, I think it's a, a significant shift and an appreciation for what's come before, but an acknowledgement that that is not going to work going forward. And it hasn't been working well for many of us in the immediate past. And Rocky, I mean, I, 
I, I will agree that this is a, an industry-wide conversation, an industry-wide issue. At the same time, there are a number of people who can speak to seeing Nas in front of an orchestra, speaking of New York, you know, they, they can speak of Nas in front of an orchestra because that's something that has happened. You know, we've had hip hop, we've had, you know, country western, we, we've had things far away from the, the core of the orchestral experience become normalized to agree. From my perspective, that has yet to really happen in opera. If you say the word opera to the run-of-the-mill person walking down the street, they're not thinking about culture, at least mm-hmm. not our culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lee always makes fun of me because um, <laughs> he says that I have a gift for understatement. Uh, <laughs> and one thing you'll often hear me say is, you know, well, you know, I don't think it's controversial to say that opera has a bit of a reputational problem. And what I'm actually saying when I say that is that, like, most people think that opera is basic and boring. And for the more often than they're than not, they're right. about that (laughs) i mean how often like you know i i would imagine for you know the average person who is not into opera like you would think that there are just 10 operas like (laughs) as many times as (laughs) and don giovanni and madam butterfly get programmed and it's like you know you can say like oh well lava m is is going to be in space or Siberia, or whatever. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, the 12-year-old Somali kid in North Minneapolis is going to look at that and say, oh, that's for me. That's cool. That's what I want. And it's just we're in this space right now where I think if we wanted to put it in sort of the characteristics of white supremacy and use that, you know, framework, you know, right now what I'm seeing is just like a lot of right to comfort. And we've just had mm. these, this generations of people growing up with the same influences, going to the same conservatories, getting hired at the same companies to create the same works over and over and over again. And what that's done is that really has shut out so many people from ownership of the art form, from even just like coming to the door and like feeling like they're a part of this. And mm-hmm. so I think what we need to do is we need to sort of shake people out of this and this, this mindset. And, you know, I think about it like, you know, when Venus and Serena, you know, broke into tennis and all of a sudden there are these two black girls from Compton mm-hmm. wearing fly outfits beads in their hair, playing this very powerful, expressive form of tennis, and all these people going like, oh, my goodness, oh, Mm -hmm. how radical. (laughs) (laughs) They came through, (laughs) and they changed up the game forever. And I feel like we can do that for opera, because, I mean, opera, you go in, once you have that experience, it's, it's transformative. It's so grand and expressive and emotional and exciting or it has the potential to be if we're just telling stories that actually like resonate with 
the majority of the population. <laughs> yeah, because the Venus and Serena opera sounds like a vibe. That, that, right? <laughs> that sounds like a ticket that I'll buy. I think know? I just made a million dollars, right? <laughs> somebody else a million dollars. Copyright, copyright, copyright. I mean, pay, you know, you, you described yourself as a lifelong opera fan. You know, I, I will make the concession that there is a lot to love about the magic flute or, you know, things at the at the very center of, of the of, of the canon. So called how do you balance you know what you love about opera versus the fact that what you love just does not connect with most people and i think it's safe to say it doesn't connect with the majority of people so you know again as as this you know lifelong opera lover where do you draw the line you know is it okay for us to begin to say well the things those these same 10 operas that we perform let's just throw them away at least for now and move forward in something new or what are your ideas about you know sacrifice and what you love in the name of progression for the art form yeah i i always like think that there's room for both I always want to see both. I want to see, you know, the old, what, same 10 operas that (laughs) that Rocky was talking about. (laughs) I mean, there are definitely reasons for, I would say, well, most of these pieces, in my opinion, (laughs) most of these pieces have survived and have continued to be performed over and over are, again, are the big names, the ones that people know are going to sell tickets and all of that. Like there's, there's a reason for it. And I think now, especially as a culturally aware opera fan, as a opera fan who very much loves her blackness Mm. and loves other cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds of life to be reflected. I say, I think even with those classics, I'm more selective about, uh, viewing or listening to something that seems to be intentional, that seems to be maybe teasing something out of the story that we do relate to more in these days. Like, for example, like Don Giovanni, like there's a very like cut classic way to to tell that story that um, may not get at some of the subtleties but there's another way to do it that is very much relatable to, you know, modern gender issues, yeah. uh, issues that we're talking about of uh, consent of, <laughs> you know, people in power and what they do with that. There's that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. Like, I don't want to hear it just for the sake of hearing it anymore. And I want to hear the new stuff. You know, I want to hear stuff that is reflecting the experiences that, oh gosh, I especially think about like the past like 15 years or so, like the uh, huge social movements that we have witnessed. I'm like, where is the opera, honey? Like, (laughs) this is drama. This is giving us everything. Where is the opera? Where is it? (laughs) Okay, so Lee, we have, you know, Don Giovanni starring... Kevin Samuels, you know, may may he rest in peace. I think that could be a vibe. That could be a thing. <laughs> who, are, who or what are we serving at the very end of the day? Yes, we have gotten black folks in the theater because I'm definitely buying a ticket to that, you know. Well, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we're still taking a story that we have made ours, but it's not ours. So at the end of the day, as we reframe these classic stories for more contemporary audiences, are we not perpetuating the same thing in a new way? Not necessarily, right? Um, I mean, I think the 
one of the great things about art is that it can resituate something in such a way that you are capturing very different perspectives and, and meanings on something, right? And I think if you think about something like the creation, either creation myths or like the Noatian flood, right? How many different um, cultures have a story about a great flood coming through, washing away, and, and giving the opportunity for rebirth, right? And I think what what we can do with art is be able to represent lots of very different perspectives for lots of different people in lots of different moments. The, these things don't have to be locked in time, right? And I think if you're willing to step away from the idea that so many of these things have to be set in European courts with the powdered wigs or, you know, the black face, yellow face, all of those kinds of things, We're I think that gives... That. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I think that gives a an opportunity, right? But as Paige pointed out, we have room, we have talent, we have funding to tell new stories and to bring in new people and create new conversations. And this isn't just for the benefit of people of color, right? This is for the benefit of literally everybody to be exposed to the richness of our culture, right? Yeah. And Paige, I'll take it a step further because you know, let's let's say fine, we're we're making these stories uh, that have been told, you know, for for ages, and making them more uh, palatable for today's audiences. We still have issues like operas, you know, hate for women, as I perceive it. I will never mm-hmm. forget going, you know, as an orchestral musician, I know the music to Carmen. I know all of that music, but going and actually seeing it and seeing what happens at the end, mm-hmm. I was not right with that. I felt like I needed to write an email to someone, but Bizet is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, you know, the, the idea that I've thrown out there is maybe if we want to stick to some of these canonized works, we have to slightly change some of the aspects about it. You know, speaking specifically about Carmen, you know, the word Roma is used instead of the G word. You know, that is a a change that people have been willing to make. Would you stand in the way or be upset about plot changes? Maybe even something as big as uh, Carmen kills Don Jose or, you know, things, things like that toward reframing and reaching new audiences. You know, I'm here for it. I, I, I like that kind of stuff. (laughs) And that might also be the kind of person I am, though. Like, I, especially something as classic as that, like, okay, we know the whole story, like Carmen and all his retellings. Yeah, I'm I'm down for something different. I'm down for something different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, as we talk about some of the specific issues that we're actually dealing with and engaging, Rocky, I wonder if you could speak to the issue of losing current audiences when when we begin to really shift programming and and make measurable changes in my opinion it's a little naive to think that everyone who's been here is going to like that and is going to stay how do you, how do you engage that part of the conversation losing the 30 years subscriber for the sake of the curious you know latine uh, art goer hmm. <laughs> i mean There's a part of me that wants to be spicy and just say, oh, well. (laughs) (laughs) But I know that that's not realistic, right? Hmm. Um, So, I mean, I think I would just kind of echo what what Lee was saying earlier. It's about, you know, we, I I remember having a conversation with, um, 
you know, one of those 30 year subscribers who was just sort of saying that like, well, you know, all of these new works, you know, I'd, I don't quite understand them, but, you know, as long as the music is pretty, you know, that's all I really care about. And it was just sort of this kind of supposition that like the music wouldn't be pretty. Um, And it, it just got me thinking that like, you know, I just feel as though as long as we are just continuing to tell good stories, as long as we are continuing to make great music, um, I think those people are going to stay. And hopefully the hope is that by telling these different stories or telling old stories in a different way with a new perspective, as we kind of say in our mission statement, we are hopefully changing lives and perhaps changing some perspectives. And some of those people can leave the theater with a new outlook on things. I know that that's kind of wishful thinking and Pollyanna, but, you know, as an artist, I do believe in the, you know, the ability of art to transform and to change people's thinkings and perspectives and minds. I know it because. I've seen it, I've felt it, I've gone and I've seen a a work and it has helped me, you know, leave the theater and and think about things that are going on in the world in a new and different way. So I don't know, I'm a Sagittarius, I tend to be optimistic about these things. I think I wouldn't be in my position um, if I didn't believe um, that, you know, opera and art in general had the power to change things. Um, so, I mean, there are people who are just going to leave. They just are. There's nothing that we can do about it. We can't go into these people's homes and be like, you will go see Blue and you will have your mind changed. <laughs> um, but hopefully the people who do stick around, you know, I hope that they, you know, see an opera like Blue or the song Poet that's coming up and come away with a new idea about like what opera can be and you know continue to support i got to find peace of mind i got to find peace of mind he says it's impossible but i know it's possible he says it's impossible but i know it's possible says there's no me without him please help me forget about him he takes all my energy trapped in my memory constantly holding me i gotta find peace of mind from lauren hill unplugged i thought that was a good track to get us out of part one of that conversation because we had rocky basically talking about the fact that some people are not going to come along with the change that folks like us are are trying to put out there some folks you just got to leave behind and you got to try to find peace of mind in that reality it's hard scott sometimes to accept that reality because you want to bring everyone along. You want people to be better. Right. You want them to benefit as That's well right. from the changes that are being made. What are what are your thoughts or what's your engagement with that dissonance? Wanting everyone to come along, but also knowing ain't everybody going to come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about it a lot. And there's part of me that 
like you, every once in a while gets frustrated and goes, what's the use? And I know that there are people who aren't, <clears throat> who are going to change their opinion of me and not come along. But I can't let that stop me for trying to get a convert here and there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because like you were saying before the interview, um, that track by Modest Yahoo, you know, you, you have to continually tell yourself that there's a chance that I can reach somebody. There's yeah. a chance that I can touch somebody somehow. Yeah. I mean, they, we, ha we have to accept that that give up nature again, as I said before, that that is when the other side wins. You know, no, yeah. the the challenge is is staying with it. If it was easy to to stay with it and to to paint against the grain and to do all of those things, we'd have a different world because everyone would do it. The easy thing is to give up or say this is just how things are. So I think if anything, just the spirit of pressing forward if you can hang on to that you know that's half the battle that's what your opponent wants you to do mm -hmm. is give up absolutely and you know as we'll we'll, we'll return to uh, my conversation part b in my conversation uh with rocky page and lee from the score next week but i just thought that was a good place to sort of let it be for this week thinking about you know what it means to each of us uh that not everybody is going to come along, be be open to change and to engage some of the things that folks like us are are trying to do. So shout out to the host from The Score. I hope y'all will go check out The Score podcast. And uh, we'll be back next week with part B uh, of my conversation that I had with them. But for right now, we're going to jump into the Triloquy movement and we're going to play a little music by Etor Villalobos. I will uh, speak to the context of this on the other side, but this is uh, three members from the Boston Festival Orchestra performing via Lobosch's trio for oboe, clarinet, and bassoon. A bit of the very end of it here to get us into this week's final movement. one of the uh, tracks, if anything, one of the so-called canonized works performed by Imani Wins uh, here in Minneapolis a couple weeks ago. I had the opportunity to uh, go see them live, which was, you know, fun. It's always fun to do that. A spe special shout out to Monica Ellis, you know, one of the bassoon godmothers out there continuing to inspire each of us. Anyway, it was so great to hear that track. It was a great experience. But unfortunately, when you're a person of color in this thing called classical music, the thing that you are there to really enjoy you have to just wade through all of the other things <laughs> that it means to be in that space Did someone to be touch able your to enjoy so it's not that someone touched my hair but i walked in the thing and it was in a church i'm not gonna call out the church but i'm not in there for five minutes and someone walks up to me and basically is like oh there you are well we sure can't wait to hear you perform this evening so of course they thought male short black locks and not blonde locks as they've been on monica's head for 20 years <laughs> they thought that i was her 
you know, challenge. And and the guy comes back, and you know, and so because I'm I'm in a high life state, I'm looking forward to checking out Imani wins. I'm 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 feeling positive. Dell is with me, so you know, I didn't let it upset me. But you know, after a while, I think maybe like 15 minutes later, the same guy finds me. He's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm just uh, so sorry that that was really dumb of me. You know, we just don't have that many black people here in this congregation. So you know, sometimes I da da da. Well, that was so, frank. Yeah, it was very it was very frank, and I'm like. Oh, okay, no, it's cool. I, I didn't make a big deal. I didn't make anyone feel bad. So the beard this, would have been a big giveaway. So right, but anyway, <laughs> my question for you, Scott, is: Is this me doing my part? Because I feel like I would have been justified to a degree to have an attitude in there. You know, maybe not to get loud, not to fight the man, but to make him feel away. I, I think there aren't a lot of people who would say that I'm doing too much if I, you know, wagged my finger and, and, and lined him up, but I didn't. I was very polite. So is this what bridge building is? Just a few... is, is, this, is this the charge of black people to just be <laughs> confused for the only other black person that you could think of? Oh, is that what it is? Is that what we have to do? <laughs> uh, just a few moments ago, you, you said, uh, that's called growth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you oh, so now I'm growing. So, oh, okay. <laughs> listen, y'all. I have seen a transition. I have seen Garrett go through a shift. So maybe you're thinking about the ripple effects. Maybe you're thinking about you know, I have the power to destroy this person's day because I you know. because listen. Now wait, now wait. I'm not done. <laughs> so you could have destroyed this person's oh yes entire. You could have humiliated them. Mm -hmm. Instead, you saw the power in the pardon. You saw the power in the, I get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that person's going to do that again? Probably not. I hope, well, but probably so is the, <laughs> is the crazy part. <laughs> you know what? I mean, because, and, and a part of me can't help but to kind of chuckle about it because what if, you know, you went somewhere and somebody thought you were... <laughs> <laughs> Go! I can't wait. Thought I was who? Kenny Kenny Chesney. I don't know <laughs> what <laughs> exactly. I mean, but I don't look like Monica. So what? So so what? It's the same. It's the same level of ridiculousness. You no, see? that your yours. <laughs> you closer to Kenny Chesney than I am. Monica have a beard. <laughs> Come okay. on. Uh, so I guess the moral of that story is: white people, be sure. <laughs> Before you, you walk up to somebody <laughs> talking about, oh, we can't wait. Just be just be sure. And if there's any chance that you're wrong, maybe just don't. Because not everyone is going to have the grace that I have for that man. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's true. Some, somebody else said that they loved my it's, outfit, you know. It's but, growth. <laughs> you know, and then the other part of that, Scott, is, and I wasn't trying to stick here with this one, but... We got to deal with all that. You know, we have Imani Wins. We have this chamber music ensemble that so many black musicians like myself grew up looking up to. And when we have our opportunity to go see them, mm -hmm. we have to go deal with that. Mm -hmm. You know, that 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 is a part yeah. of the experience. Yeah. Look, just shining a light on the issue and maybe we can all learn and be better from it. So like I said, be sure, don't don't mix up your black people. Just, just be positive. <laughs> you're talking to who you're talking to. The other thing I wanted to bring to you, Scott, I was in conversation with somebody 
last week and we were talking about, you know, okay, well, you know, even if you have to, you know, stay in within the canon, who's your favorite composer? So I'm talking about Shostakovich and, you know, all these folks, William Grant Still, of course, and they came back with George Gershwin mm -hmm. and kind of made a point, <laughs> kind of made a point. And I know that I sort of have a, a long-standing reputation of being the anti-Gershwin person. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the name of solidarity and bridge building, it might be useful for me to revisit the subject of Gershwin. I'm just looking at you growing <laughs> in the moment. I think the issue, though, is we know Gershwin more than we know the composers and the individuals, the communities that he got the style from. Right, right. I that, see. That, yeah. that, he, that he got the juice from. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how do you think we should approach celebrating someone like George Gershwin? If you don't know who George Gershwin is, he wrote uh, Porgy and Bess, a black opera, but he was a, a Jewish composer. You know, how do you do you have yet uh, an equation when it comes to talking about folks like Gershwin and honoring where it came from? I mean, is is there some sort of you know honoring black folks that can be done while yeah, it's honoring Gershwin? It's, it's you know? interesting. I'm going to have to do that now because I've brought up Gershwin when talking about William Grant Still because there's a little side story I found somewhere that Gershwin heard a band that still was playing in mm -hmm. and got ideas. Right. Well, of course he got ideas. So, right. But then he goes off and, you know, uh, writes all these characterizations that right. become problematic. But however, you know, what about his piano concerto or Rhapsody in Blue? Mm -hmm. You know, those are, uh, I, I don't know how much of that is pulled from black culture. How much of the, I mean, nearly, nearly all of it. And, you know, I guess it doesn't help to just continue to shit on Gershwin if we're not going to, you know, use that as a springboard for teaching people about the black music. You know, that that's I guess that's how I'm thinking about it now. Just what you know, was the point that you said he made the there was a good point made? I mean, he was just making the point that uh, Gershwin is representative of American classical music. This is something that's mm, unique okay. to us. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like in the spirit of just building these bridges and decolonizing classical music, more solidarity is going to be necessary. So in the same way that I was polite with that nice white man who thought I was a, you know, a, a woman with uh, with blonde locks mm -hmm. and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that I that I don't have, you know. In the same way, I offer some grace there. I think I'm trying to offer some grace across the board. I just don't always see it conversely. I feel like that power dynamic is always there, where we have to talk about Gershwin if we're going to talk about spirituals or William Grant Still or, or or these people. And I just feel like equity is flipping that on its on its head, making sure that people know why Gershwin, you know, making sure people know why blues, why classical mm -hmm. music, you know, mm -hmm. talking about the the white supremacist uh influx and 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 conditioning of things that give us the the definitions of that phrase that we have. You know, I think I, I felt like I was talking about that this last week in the triloquy, you know, building bridges and I'm talking about it again because, you know, I, I think there's there's work that I'm doing. I'm I'm feeling myself sort of understanding more ways in which we can transform this thing, you know, through dialogue, through seeing each other and just through acknowledging what is, what was and and what we're what we're going to do with it. That's where I am 
this week anyway because I'm, I'm probably going to go to another concert next week and somebody gonna call me somebody else <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't gonna be right <laughs> and, and here i thought i was being cynical <laughs> anyway thank you everyone always a pleasure we'll see you next week